Okay, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Now, I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. Our text will be verse 12 today. The Apostle Paul has established a tremendous theme in this letter to the Colossian church. The theme being, and it's quite expansive, if, uh, if you will, the superiority of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, and the sufficiency of Christ. All that in chapter 1. In preparation for warning the church of false teachers, false prophets, who are bringing in, and were at the time bringing in, a, a heresy that was based upon the Greek philosophies and the uh, Eastern mysticisms of the time, as, as well as even Jewish legalism. And we've talked much about that in the first two chapters. But in chapter 3, Paul begins to speak on the more uh, practical issues for believers in the church with the uh, understanding of what he has been writing to them about as far as living Christ, believing in Christ, knowing who he is. And and that's really the, the, the greatest thing here is knowing who Jesus Christ is. That he is not only the Son of God, but he is God the Son. That he is indeed God in the flesh. And so he challenges the church, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affections on things above, not on things below. For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And then he goes on in verse 5 of chapter 3 to speak on mortification, mortifying the members on the earth. The things that are done in the flesh that we did before we came to know Christ. And mortify them, put them to death. And then he begins to use another, uh, another illustration. He begins to use the illustration of taking off, putting off the old man as, as if taking off old stinky garments. And then putting on new garments. The garments that reflect the person and work of Jesus Christ in every believer's life. We're to put off the things of of the world like anger and wrath and malice and so on and so forth and put on the new man and it is in verse 12 where we begin to see specifically what we are to put on as the new people that we are to be in Christ so Paul says in verse 12 put on therefore as the elect of God holy and beloved bowels of mercies kindness humbleness of mind Meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, put on agapao or agape, put on the unconditional love of Jesus Christ, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, 
to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Now, the new life in Jesus Christ is one that should be an extraordinarily significant contrast to the old life of the worldly flesh and the sin-filled carnal nature of fallen man. It has to be significantly different. It cannot be similar in any way. It is a different kind of life. The first few verses of this chapter certainly lay a foundation to that understanding. When I said, of course, early on, and I read a little bit of it in Colossians 3 verse 1, if you then be risen with Christ. We can see this as a challenge here to the church. If you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above. The word set there is a very strong word that means that when you set it, I mean you plan it. It's cemented. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. There's part of the contrast. Setting our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Make sure that you're examining yourself to know that you are not as you were before in the world. As you were in the world, as you were before, as you did the things of the world, now you are not to do those things. Why? Because you are a new creature in Christ. Now, once a person has accepted that truth, the truth of what Christ has done on their behalf, they now have that new life. Now, I'm going to give you what I would call Evangelism 201, because Evangelism 101 is what what you learn about how you tell people about Jesus Christ and how you bring them to the knowledge of Christ through the Word of God. Evangelism 201 is what, what they are to do after they've come to know Jesus. So that's where we are here. That once a person has accepted the truth of what Christ has done on their behalf, they have this new life. You, you have that new life. It is clear in Scripture. You're not building up to a new life. You're not working toward it. You have a new life. Take, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I know that in some translations it says he is a a new creation. Oh, that's nice. But you know what? I like the word creature there. Because I know what I was before I came to know Christ. Really old and weird creature. You know. But we're a new creature in Christ. Because the old is dead. And, and, And let's not throw that picture out. The old is dead. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so that person that's accepted the truth of Christ and what he's done on on our behalf, on his behalf, or on their behalf, 
then that person becomes a child of God. He not only has a new life, but he is a child of God. That's made clear in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, where John writes, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Jesus came unto his own people, the Jewish people, and his own received him not. Many of them did not receive him. But, in verse 12 it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, both Jew and Gentile. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Born as sons of God. So that person who has accepted the truth of what Christ has done on their behalf, that has a new life now, has also become a child of God, that same person learns that they are also saved and delivered from the bondage of sin and death, by God's undeserved favor, which is his grace, through faith. And he comes to the knowledge of his salvation. Just as Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's no room for us in this picture. There's no room for us to say that, well, we helped a little bit with God. No, we have nothing. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive. And it is the gift of God, the faith of Jesus Christ, as I'll mention in just a moment. But in Romans chapter 10 as well, verses 8 through 11, Paul mentions something called uh, the righteousness, which is of faith, back in verse 6 of Romans 10. And then he says, of that which sayeth certain things, the righteousness which is of faith, he says in verse 8, and asks the question, but what saith it? What saith the righteousness which is of faith? What does it say? And here he says, the word is nigh thee, the word is near thee. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I know that there are other translations that may lend to the idea of of being saved, but no, he says you shall be saved. Shall be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And so then that person, that uh, has accepted the truth of what Christ has come to do on, his, on their behalf and has become a child of God and has understood the, the, the salvation and the deliverance that they have in Jesus Christ by faith through his grace or through, by grace through his faith. Now comes full circle to the understanding that they now identify with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. It is so clear that Christ is saying, I am crucified with Christ. The action of crucifixion is the action of death. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not by faith in the Son of God, by the faith of the Son of God. These words are very significant and they're very meaningful. 
Well, understand that if we were to say that it's our faith, then what? We're also helping out. But it is the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it is truly then a significant contrast to the old life and the old man. The old life and the, and the new life cannot be the same. They cannot look the same. They cannot be the same. And now as seen and heard in our previous studies, the believer in Jesus Christ is to strip off the clothing of his old life. Because the garments of his old life are unbecoming to their new life. It just doesn't fit. The old life doesn't fit with a new life. As we will learn today, there are some garments that are becoming to the believer's new life in Christ. If the old man is dead, then so are the garments of the old man. And besides, who wants to be a new man in Christ in, in our hearts and wear the garments of the old? The garments that don't fit anymore, the garments that are actually all torn and tattered, and the garments that are very stinky. Who wants to wear that? This is the reason why Paul uses this as an illustration, as a picture. So there are those things that be, are becoming to the believers in uh, their new life in Christ. And we see those beginning in verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. In other words, if Christ is all and in all, the last part of verse 11, then put on therefore. That's what that therefore points to. If Christ is all and in all in your life, put on therefore as God's elect. God's elect. Holy and beloved. Put on bowels of mercies. Put on kindness. Put on humbleness of mind. Put on meekness. Put on long-suffering. Put on forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. The aspect of putting on is emphasized by Paul three times in this chapter. First in verse 10 where he says, and have put on the new man. Not that you're putting on, but that you have put on the new man. Secondly, in verse 12, he says, put on therefore as the elect of God. And then in verse 14, he says, and above all these things, put on charity. Three times he emphasizes this action of putting on. The new man is to be recognized by his outer garments. The new man is to be recognized by his outer garments or his habits. We talked about the word habits here recently as being like, like garments because, in fact, they can be classified as garments. So the new man is recognized by his outer garments or his habits as the old man is by his tattered and stinky rags. The old man is going to be known by those awful clothes. And those two words put on are in the imperative. In other words, this is not a suggestion, but a command. It is a command as believers in Jesus Christ to put on the new clothes, to put on the new garments. We are required to wear these new garments as believers in Jesus Christ. The believer in Jesus Christ has received holiness of character 
as God's elect. Now notice that I said he, he has received holiness of character as God's elect. He hasn't worked his way up to holiness. He recognizes a change in his life, yes. All because of the things that Christ has already done for us. But now we are commanded to be holy. Read the first chapter of of Peter's letter to the church. Where he quotes from the book of Leviticus and he says, Be ye holy as I am holy. Quoting from that to the church. But it is God who establishes us as holy. As we'll see in just a moment. So the believer in Jesus Christ has received holiness of character as God's elect. Being God's elect has to do with what we are positionally. This is our position in Christ. It is the holiness of God, it is the holiness of Christ that sets us, apart, sets us apart from the world and sets us unto Jesus Christ. The word means to separate. The word holy, by the way, means to separate. It means to set apart. It means to be sanctified. So we are sanctified from the world and sanctified unto Christ. We are holy, set apart from the world and set apart unto Christ. We are separated from the world. We are uh, separated unto Jesus Christ. So now the Lord has set us apart from the world and from the unsaved. Now don't get the idea that we are not to speak to the unsaved. In fact, if it wasn't for a believer coming to me when I was lost and telling me about Jesus Christ, who knows where I'd be today? And the same thing for many of us here. That's our testimony, that somebody shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with us. So it's not about not not being in connection with, with, with the unsaved. What it is is being separated from the way we lived when we were in the world and when we were unsaved. And we don't go about going back into the world and, 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 and frolicking with the unsaved. That, that's the whole point here. He has set us apart from the world and from the unsaved. And it needs to be known and understood that God's purpose is and has always been that we should be like his dear son. We should be like Jesus. In fact, the scriptures tell us that we are to grow day by day more and more into the image of Christ. Why? Because the image of Christ is is that which we are to follow, which fulfill all of these elements and garments of holiness. When it comes to being God's elect, Please understand this. Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 20, verse 16 says, So the last last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Many of us are familiar with that statement. Now, the context is a little different in Matthew 22, verse 14, when he says something very similar, but he says, For many are called, but few are chosen. But when Jesus was on his way to Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, he stopped with his disciples on the the way there and he told them this. He said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That That whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Now, I have to tell you that it's very easy sometimes 
to hear that and say, wow, Jesus chose me. I must have something that he saw in me. Oh, wow. I wonder what that is. I, yeah. No, 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 don't, don't get too puffed up here. Before anybody does get puffed up over this, I want you to consider something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To a church that really needed to hear this, just like we do. He said in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, he said, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And we think, well, whoa, okay. Guess I must not be wise. Maybe I'm not as mighty as I think I am. Or even noble. Paul goes on and he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Oh, there we are. The foolish things of the world. That's what he's saying we are. Now, before you want to write a Twitter feed uh, to Paul, saying that you're not all that foolish, just listen to what he goes on to say. Y'all don't write Twitter feeds, do you? Okay. He says... And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Now we need to start confessing that indeed we are pretty weak. In fact, Paul himself <clears throat> spoke of his own weakness when he said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. For my for his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Christ's strength is made perfect when we're weak. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world. <clears throat> now, to understand base things, just you can look at the wall down at the bottom there and you see there's a baseboard. That's what they call that down on the walls, baseboards. Notice that the baseboards aren't up high. They're not in the middle. They're not up there. No, they're at base. Why? Because that's the base. That's the bottom. And he says he's chosen the base things of the world. We're at the bottom. No matter where we think we are, we're at the bottom. And the things which are despised. Has God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And here it is that no flesh should glory in his presence. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That in itself, those four things put together as one thing, is, is the righteousness of Christ that is our covering today. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let's remember that those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are established as holy, are set apart and sanctified as holy by God's sovereign will and is not the result of human merit or attainment. We don't make ourselves holy, but we are to stay holy. At the moment that God has 
sanctified us because we accepted the truth that Jesus Christ bore our sins on our behalf on the cross. And in believing in him, we are saved by grace through faith. Then we are established holy by God's sovereign will and not by anything that we've done. We've, we've also as believers have been elected to be beloved, beloved of God. But that's something that we should already know. Now, looking at it from this side of eternity and looking back at what Jesus said when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. But the world has not so loved God. We were called to turn away from the old life that rejected and rebelled and ignored and denied God. Can you imagine so many people rejecting and denying and, and rebelling and, uh, you know, and ignoring God and yet constantly cursing in the face of God? That was many of us. It is now in revealing this holiness of character in, in the garments that we are to put on beginning with what he calls the bowels of mercies. As the garment that we are to wear as believers. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. The term bowels of mercies refers first to the deepest heartfelt compassion the deepest pity and tender-heartedness that any human could ever have for others. The word bowels comes, comes from a Greek word that is used as well in, in, in uh, physiology and medicine. I mean, it, it's, it's the word for spleen. But it's oftentimes used for the deepest part of a person's heart. The Lord has had and shown so much mercy upon us that the one thing we should do is to show mercy to others. Our hearts should be flooded with compassion and pity for the lost, for the wayward, for the lonely, for the homeless, for the hungry, for the aged, for the hurting, for the diseased, for the poor and the empty, the unclothed and the orphan. And, you, and we know this, the list could go on and on. We're to be clothed with mercy so much so that we no longer can overlook the needy in the world. We're now clothed with the deepest of mercies, holding nothing back. That in itself is another indication of being clothed with the bowels of mercies. That we hold nothing back in showing the mercies of God. In dealing with fasting in Isaiah chapter 58, and we're not going to deal with fasting ourselves, but God was dealing with fasting and, and bringing this message through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 58 verses 6 and 7, he said, Is not this the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free? And that ye break every yoke. But now look at verse 7. Is it not 
to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Even in teaching about fasting, the Lord says, hey, you need to be clothed with the bowels of mercies. To the Ephesian elders, when Paul was about to leave to go on to Jerusalem, he said many great things, but there was one thing he said in Acts 20, verse 35, that we need to hear. He said to them, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And even the Apostle Peter, in his first letter to the church, said in 1 Peter 3, verse 8, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Now, in time, the English English language has changed a little bit, and the word pitiful doesn't mean what it did back in the 17th century. But that word that Paul is using here is a word that simply means to be full of pity. I don't know how it got to be pitiful like the old 60s song, Mr. Pitiful. You remember that? Who, who remembers a song, they call me Mr. Pitiful? All, all the oldies but goodies here. Okay. Yeah, that was a crazy song. Mr. Pitiful. They weren't talking about full of pity. <laughs> he was a pitiful kind of person, I guess. Be pitiful, be courteous. Now, you would have to admit, That's not what you really were when you were in the world, when you were wearing the old garments of the flesh. Maybe you were nice to people you liked, but you weren't really nice to the people you didn't like. So understand that part of the clothing that the Lord is is fashioning for us here begins with the bowels of mercies, but then it continues on with something called kindness. The Lord's attitude was one of kindness. The Lord Jesus' attitude was one of kindness. It's impossible, by the way, to maintain fellowship with God and not show his kindness toward others. It's impossible. There may may indeed be a a rigid, legalistic type of self-righteousness that leads one to imagine that he or she has been appointed by God to demonstrate his justice. There are people like that today. I hope that none of us are this way. That, you know, that we judge people because they're not like us, you know. We forget that we were where they were. We start judging in the wrong way. We're we're, we're actually becoming legalists and, and, and expecting people to be like us instead of to be like Jesus. But that kind of piety, that kind of self-righteousness is far from the godliness promoted in the New Testament. The loving kindness of the Lord will be revealed in our kindness to one another. Isn't it interesting that the word for mercies is this long extended word called loving kindnesses. 
It's not just kindness, it is loving kindnesses. And it's not usually singular, it's plural. We are to have loving kindnesses for others. It's interesting that the Greek word for gentleness, found in the passage of the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5, is the same word for kindness here. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 12. It is being kind and good. It is being useful and helpful. It is being gentle and sweet. It is being considerate and gracious through all situations, no matter the circumstances. And folks, if you examine yourself based upon what I just said, you would be saying right now, I really wasn't like that before I came to know Jesus. Right? Again, you might have been that way to people you liked, but you were very different to others. It experiences the full depth. In other words, kindness experiences the full depth of sympathy and empathy. It suffers with those who suffer. It struggles with those who struggle. It labors with those who labor. You know, Jesus in Luke chapter 6 verse 35 said this, But love ye your enemies. Some people like were kind of weird about that. What? But listen to what he said. But love ye your enemies and do good. And lend. Hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great and you shall be the children of the highest. Well, isn't that what we're supposed to be now as the new man in Christ or the new person in Christ? For he is kind. Unto the unthankful and to the evil. And those vows of mercies and compassion that have moved into kindness along with it together have now come to another garment, humbleness of mind. And while the garments of mercies and kindness can be considered as inner garments, the next one is a covering or cap for the head. It says, humbleness of mind. As we've been studying in the prophecy of Obadiah on Wednesday night, or Wednesday nights, we've been dealing with the pride of Edom, the nation that was a bitter enemy against Israel. And God is judging them for this pride and their hatred of the Jewish people. But pride is of all things the most hateful to God. Pride of all things is the most hateful to God. We're told, and there are a number of scriptures dealing with pride, because that really was, if you will, the original sin. And a person named, well, actually a being named Lucifer would then be known as Satan or the devil. But in Psalm 138, verse 6, it says, Though the Lord be high, yet has he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth Afar off. He respects the lowly. 
our great God who is supposed to be high and we need to keep him high. We need to have a high view of our God, not a low view of God and a high view of man, a high view of God and a low view of man. Because God, though he be high, has respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. Why? Because the proud says, hey, I can handle myself. I can do things myself. I can find my way myself. And that's the most hateful thing to God. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. A haughty, arrogant spirit. But consider, if you will, again, the, the, the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 5 through 7, he says, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another. And be clothed with humility. And he uses the same idea, the same illustration, the same picture of clothing ourselves. Clothing ourselves with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. He says, humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him. For he careth for you. And then in realizing one's own weakness and natural tendency to go astray. Just that very attitude. That we realize our weaknesses. That we realize that in the flesh we have a tendency to go away from God. What that should do for us is it should lead us to lower thoughts of ourselves. Making it easier then to put on the garment, the next garment, of meekness. And let me just say now, meekness is not weakness. Many people have, have, have that idea of, of, of being meek is, is being weak. But this particular grace, this particular grace is made of, of rarer material than is often supposed. Jesus was certainly adorned with it. He tells us himself in one of the great passages of Scripture. It, it is one of the great invitations given by Jesus himself. When he said in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Anybody want to call Jesus weak? Because he calls himself meek? Then you need to come to an understanding of what it means to be meek. He says, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Meekness is not weakness. There's another description given to us in the scriptures in the Old Testament about a man named Moses. Because even Moses would wear this garment of, of meekness, this garment of excellent texture. When parenthet Parenthetically, it says in Numbers 12, verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek, 
above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. The man Moses was very meek. The very same man that, that killed an Egyptian for mistreating a fellow Israelite. The very man who stood in the face of, of Pharaoh to plead before him to let his people go. The, the very man who led the children of Israel, 2.5 million plus people out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years and led them through the wilderness up to the Entrance of the promised land. This Moses was very meek, but he wasn't weak. From both examples, we should learn that meekness is not weakness. It is truly power under control. That is meekness. Power under control as best seen in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When on the days of, of, of Passover, days before Jesus would go to the cross, days before he would be nailed on the cross, he went courageously and bravely knowing what his calling was in coming to this earth. In Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3, and yes, Zephaniah is a, is a book in the Bible. Capital Z with a bunch of other little letters after it. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. It's one of the minor prophets. This is what we are commanded. Men are commanded to this, to this word. It says, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. You want to be rescued? You want to escape the wrath of God? Then be meek. Seek meekness. Remember that meekness personified went to the cross on our behalf. And as I've already mentioned, he went bravely and he went courageously. For he knew that that's why he came. Lastly and closely associated with meekness is the grace of long-suffering. Long-suffering. The readiness to endure the grief of suffering wrongfully. When we are falsely accused, it's only natural for us to resent such treatment or to think that we have to defend ourselves. But we know from the Gospels that when false witnesses rose up against our Lord Jesus, he, he uttered not a word. He said nothing. We need to commit our reputations as well as everything that we consider valuable. We need to commit everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've oftentimes said that reputation 
is what men think we are. Character is what God knows we are. And if we are, if we are living the new life in Jesus Christ, then we are to remember that we have a character of holiness. A character of righteousness. For now we exude the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider, if you will, in Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. Part of the what is called the Sermon on the Mount by many. He said, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. The only way that we can do that is in the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. We cannot do it any other way. It cannot be done in the flesh. It cannot be done by our intellect. It cannot be done by our own strength. It cannot be done by willpower. It needs to be done by our death to ourselves and our death to the flesh and our life that is hidden in Christ, in God. That is the only way. In long-suffering, believers become consistent followers of the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, who said this prophetically through, a, through the psalmist in Psalm 35, verse 11. False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. And what, that, what that phrase really reflects is things that I would not say and I would not defend. And so I want to close and come to the table of communion this, this morning or afternoon now with the words of Jesus again in Matthew chapter 5. Earlier on, connecting the section called the Beatitudes to the rest of his message, he said in verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. What does it go on to say? Does it say, well, be angry about it? No. He says rejoice. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. All I can tell you is we are in good company when we put on the garments of our, Christ, of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're in good company. We're in the company of the prophets and the company of the apostles. We are in the company of the psalmists. We're in the company of Jesus himself. 
put on, therefore, as the elect of God, as God's elect. Know that that's what you are. Know that there should be no question whatsoever as to what your place is in Christ. He has made you holy and beloved. Know this. And then humbly live your life for Christ. Let this opportunity today to examine ourselves, to see that we're in the, in the faith, be the moment for us to say to the Lord, Lord, we're here to die, you know, to die once again. To die to ourselves and to live unto Christ. To be risen with Christ. To be blessed in Christ's name.